For those that you reign in the auditorium or watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus and chapter 26, Leviticus 26. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. Perhaps you came this morning and you don't have a Bible. We want to provide one for you. Because everything we do here is based on, rooted in, the Word of God. And so it is not our opinions or merely our thoughts, but it is what God has for us. So somewhere underneath the chairs in front of you, there should be a Bible for you. And if you don't have one, please take that with you this morning as you go. But in that Bible, it's on page 98, page 98, Leviticus chapter 26. For those of you that have been with us since the beginning of this year, we have three sermons left in the book of Leviticus. All right. We'll keep going. <laughs> Leviticus 26, the first 13 verses. Before I read them, I want us to consider a couple things because I think it's very vital before we read this passage. In the first place, I want us to understand that what we see around us is not right. Our general perspective is that the world that we can see and that we interact with is real. And there is nothing beyond that perhaps or that it's the way that it should be in many ways. The truth is, the world that we can see and interact with is not right, has not been right since the fall of humanity, recorded for us back in Genesis chapter 3, and the world that we interact with every day is actually upside down. It has upside down priorities, it has upside down goals, the powers and principalities of darkness that we were reminded of this morning are at work in it. They are the opposite and antagonistic towards what is right and good and holy. And so what we need is God, through Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, to show us the right way, the way the world ought to be. And our church, and churches like ours, ought to be glimpses of the world right side up, as we live in a world that is upside down. It is, in some ways, necessary for us to have an understanding of Scripture similar to individuals that struggle with eyesight. Now, I don't, and so I'm not speaking from personal experience, but I have two children and a wife that need corrective lenses. And uh, for our children in particular, it took a little while to discover that they needed those corrective lenses. And this happens. We don't know how anybody else sees we only know how we see. And so we, that looks a little fuzzy to me. Is it just me or is it other people? And so we might move closer to the front of the room or we try to squint or adjust. It takes a while for an individual to understand that they might need corrective lenses. It certainly takes longer for individuals around them to kind of help them with that process. And that's kind of like us without the Word of God, without Jesus Christ, without the Holy Spirit. We see what's around us, but we don't see it correctly. We see it upside down and we begin slowly to accept that. I guess the world's just fuzzy. I guess I just have to squint. 
But God breaks through with his truth to say, no, here is what the world should look like, and he gives us, in essence, a pair of glasses, his word, his truth to say, this is correct. This is the right way to look. And the book of Leviticus is really that. That's what the book of Leviticus is. It's for an entire nation of people to say, the nations around you are living in and perpetuating an upside-down existence. Their priorities are earthly. Their priorities are demonic. Their purposes and their goals are anti-God. And so I'm going to provide for you a corrective lens, a, a way to see correctly and clearly. Because I, as a holy God, am going to live in the midst of you and unholy people, and I'm going to reveal to you what the world should look like. And you then are going to reveal to all the people around you what the world should look like. Before we go see a movie, oftentimes we see a trailer. It gets us excited for the movie. Unless we don't like the movie. <laughs> but generally speaking, the trailer's there to say, hey, come see this movie. Gets us hyped. In essence, the church, us, not just gathered here on Sunday, but as we live our lives every day, we're a trailer for the movie called The Kingdom of God. It's coming. It's also here. And it has godly priorities. It is not full or ought not to be full of jealousy and strife and envy and all the things that James says to us at the end of James chapter 3. But it's the world seen correctly. It's the world right side up. And so how we interact with each other, how we love each other and support each other, how we act as a family here at Grace matters. Not just for us, although we get the benefit from it, but for all those outside that are confused and lost and hurting and in pain. They don't have the answers. They're struggling. We do have the answers, not because we are smarter or better looking or more moral. We simply have the answers because of God's grace. And so the book of Leviticus is a corrective lens for us. Now, in particular, this passage, there are two wrong ways to read this that I want to caution us before we even get in. And yes, I'm aware that my introduction is probably going to be longer than the actual sermon, but I think it's important here. We can read a passage like Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 to 13, as an entrance into relationship with God, as though our relationship with God is contractual. So God says to us in the first two verses, do this. And God says, if you do, verses 3 through 13, I'll do this. Don't read the passage that way. Because that is an incorrect way to view the passage. Our relationship with God is not contractual. We have nothing to offer him. Typically in a contract, you do this, somebody else does this, and you come to an agreement. We come to God with nothing, less than nothing. It's not a contract. It's grace. We don't enter into a contract with God whereby God says, worship me and I'll give you these nice things. Don't read that in this passage because that is not what is going on in this passage. So entrance into a relationship with God is not by works. It is only by God's grace. But on the other end, don't read this passage as an expectation. Hey, God, here, remember me? I've been worshiping you for a while now, but I don't seem to see the stuff in this passage. Bank accounts looking a little eh. 
things aren't the way that I want them to, hey, I'm a worshiper of you. I expect certain things from you. Where are the things? Don't misunderstand, please. The worship of God gains us relationship with God. He is the things. Anything else is extra by his grace. He is the good news. Relationship with him is the thing. It's not the things listed in this passage. And so as we come to this passage, understand that it is intended to show us life lived in the kingdom of God. It's a glimpse into how things were, how things can be, and how things one day will be by the grace of God. But it is neither a way into a relationship with God or a way to maintain it or an expectancy on our part. It is simply God saying to his nation of Israel, because of my grace to you, I loved you and brought you out of the nation of of Egypt. You were slaves. I am making you a nation and I'm bringing you to a place where you will have all the things. Wells that you did not dig Vineyards you did not plant. You have all of your material, physical needs met. But in all of that, do not forget the blesser in the midst of the blessing. I'm doing that because of my love for you. And so, the right way to live life is in submission to God. Recognizing him for who he is, the king of all the universe. And that will come out in the first two verses. And as we do that, we see God's provision and presence and protection in all of these things in our lives. So allow me to read the passage for you this morning, and then we'll walk through it together. Leviticus chapter 26, starting reading verse 1, and once again, in the chair Bibles provided for, for you, that is on page 98. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful. Multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. And you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This is the word of God.
And so in the first two verses, we find something very, very interesting. It looks at first blush like the two verses, the first two verses don't match the rest of the chapter and don't even quite match these first 13. But I think we're going to see in short order that they not in fact match, they introduce this section quite well. What is fascinating to me is God reminds the nation of Israel what true worship of him looks like. Again, not that their worship of him earns them a relationship with him. They already have one at this point because of his grace. Not that their relationship with him or their worship of him will gain them certain benefits. But that when you have your glasses on to see the world rightly, you see it as ruled by King Jesus and you act accordingly. And your natural, reasonable service, as Paul says in Romans 12, is worship. What does that look like? In the first place, we see that true worship is exclusive. You shall not make idols for yourselves. God is saying, I am the one who loves you. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt where you were enslaved. I am the one who will care for you, provide for you, guide you, and protect you. And so do not look to any other gods because there are none. I alone am the one true God. And when you begin to believe that someone or something else can be your security, can be your provision, can can be your protection, when you begin to treat someone or something else as greater than me, you are wrong. You've taken your glasses off and you've begun to live and accept a world that is uh, upside down. So God in love tells his nation of Israel and tells us this morning, The only hope that we have is the one who spoke all things into existence. Do not hold as ultimately valuable anyone other than or anything other than God because there is nothing and no one ultimately valuable other than God. He alone is the one true God. Do not worship anyone or anything else. Secondarily, true worship is spiritual as we had read for us. Do not erect an image or a pillar Or set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord, your God. We are tangible, material people, and we want tangible, material things. And we want tangible, material expressions of our worship of God. And we want tangible and material expressions of God to worship. And God says, no. I am spirit, and those that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Even our worship of who God is reminds us that he is not of this world. We cannot drag God down to our level. He and he alone by his grace can cause us to come up to his. It's fascinating in our Bible reading plan. We're in 2 Chronicles and the first part of 2 Chronicles talks about the building of the temple. And someone has said it's the ninth wonder of the world that the temple in Israel was not the eighth. This structure by Solomon, if you read the dimensions of it and understand the splendor of it and the sheer amount of gold and silver and bronze and cedar timbers and all the things that went into this temple, it is a magnificent structure, an awe-inducing structure, and Solomon himself is hesitant to build it because he says even in the inaugural prayer, God, who, what structure can contain you? You are greater than all things. You spoke all things into existence. And so from our perspective on planet Earth, looking at this temple, we'd be like, wow. 
but head off of planet Earth and look at this little speck of dust that we occupy in this universe. I realize how little and insignificant we are and how great and majestic God is. We cannot depict God in material ways. He is undepictable by the things of this earth because he is not of this earth. He is wholly other. True worship then in the third place is regular. Notice he says, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Previous chapter we talked about the Sabbath years and then an entire year of Sabbath on top of the Sabbath years, the year of Jubilee. God is serious about regular worship of him, and we are doing that right now, not only here on Sunday, but we do that on a regular basis. Why? Because we forget. We take our glasses off far too often Monday through Saturday, and we begin to slowly believe that the world that we occupy is right side up, and it's not right side up, it's upside down. This is real. Worship of God is real. He is real. And what's out there is not as real as he is. It does not accurately depict how things were, how things are going to be, and how things can be through his grace. And we need regular reminders. We need to cease from regular labor, labor and regular routine to come together and remind ourselves, oh yeah, i got to put my glasses back on and see things rightly. To see him. We need regular reminders. And we stop those regular reminders to our detriment. And what is fascinating, the nation of Israel does not keep these Sabbath years. Seventy of them go by without being observed. And it is that reason that God sends his nation into captivity. And you might think, well, of all the sins the nation of Israel committed, not, not doing a Sabbath, that's what caused them to go into captivity? Yes, because had they kept the Sabbath year for the right reason and with the right focus, there is a much better chance they wouldn't have committed the other sins. Remind ourselves of the grace of God. Remind ourselves of the goodness of God. We need those regular reminders. And when we don't pause and take those regular reminders and reflect, our vision is incorrect. Notice lastly, true worship is sincere. Reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. We've talked about this through the whole book of Leviticus. There is a reverence to be in God's presence. So much so that individuals have lost their lives by taking this in a manner that was not serious. Nadab and Abihu, the son, two of the sons of Aaron, lose their lives. And just prior to this, we looked at a, an individual that was half Jewish and half Egyptian that lost his life for not taking God seriously. There's a reverence here. To live as though God does not exist, to be practical atheists, God says, is not good. It is detrimental to us and to those around us. Especially those of us that say we believe there is a God, when we live our lives as though there isn't, the silence is deafening to those around us. We have the truth only by the grace of God. Do we believe it and do we live it by his grace? Before we move away from this point, notice what is fascinating is these four areas directly match up with the first four of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the first four relate to our worship to God vertically. 
And then the last six relate to our worship of God as we interact with individuals, our fellow human beings made in the image of God horizontally. But God says, you shall have no other gods before me. True worship is exclusive. You shall not make any graven image. True worship is spiritual. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. True worship is sincere. There is reverence. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. True worship is regular. God takes the time here in Leviticus 26, verses 1 and 2, to remind the nation of Israel the first four of the Ten Commandments he'd previously given them to say, this is what true worship looks like. This is what it looks like to put on the glasses and see things rightly. There is a God. There is only one God. He is God, ruler, and creator over all. And this is what it means to worship him, to respect him, to live as though those things are true, not just on Sundays, but every day. Notice that in verses 3 through 13, true worship's blessings. There are at least five blessings that God uh, itemizes for the nation of Israel. In the first place, we see God's provision. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, I will provide for you. The land will rain, the early and the latter rains, and there will be a harvest. In fact, in verse 5, the threshing of the grain harvest will take you up to the grape harvest, and then the grape harvest will take you until it's time to sow for the grain harvest. God will provide for them in the land. The land of Israel needs the rain, and rain at specific times. So God says, I love you, and I'll provide these things for you, not because you deserve them, not because you've earned them, but because I love you. And as a loving father, I provide for my children. Notice God's peace internally in the land. He says, I will give you peace in the land. You'll not be afraid in the land. No harmful beasts and no sword go through your land. There were lions and bears in the nation of Israel at this time. David comes face to face with both as he is shepherding the sheep. That is not the case currently, but was the case at this time in history. And so God says, these animals, these predators in the land, I will not uh, allow them to harm you, and also there will not be civil war. Internally there will be peace as you worship me. Because again, if God is real and he is sovereign over all things, and if we submit to him, if we love him, then how can we hate our fellow brothers and sisters? How could there be civil war in the context of people living like King Jesus actually ruling and reigning on his throne? There will be peace. God's protection, verses 7 and 8. You will chase your enemies. Five will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase 10,000. Seems like in Israel's history they were always outnumbered. And yet God wrought great victory, too many times to recount. Because when they went into battle, it was not just them fighting. It was God fighting on their behalf. Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's armies, perhaps a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Elisha tells his servant at Dothan, God, open his eyes, give him those spectacles so he can see, and he sees beyond the nation of Assyria and all of their armies, those cherubim, the protectors of God's holiness, and chariots of flaming fire. Elisha says to his servant, there are more with us than against us, and his servant said, I'm no mathematician, but I count two, and a lot out there. And, and, and Elisha says, no, no, no. God, open his eyes. See. Help us to see. 
if we recognize and understand that this world is under the rule and reign of King Jesus, then nothing, not war, not rumors of war, not removal of rights, not abandonment of Judeo-Christian principles, nothing of, of this sort can shake us because we know it is not our elected officials who a actually rule and reign ultimately. It is God who rules and reigns ultimately. And the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God's prosperity in verses 9 and 10, this sort of bookends verses 3 through 5. But I'll make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you, the covenant of Abraham that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. They would have large families, and there would be store for those large families, verse 10. You shall eat old store long kept, and you'll need to clear out the old. You'll have so much that when the new comes, you'll have to clear out the old to make way for it. It won't just be provision, it'll actually be abundance, prosperity, because of God. God delights in his children. He delights to give them good things. And then, perhaps most importantly, verses 11 through 13, God's presence. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. His Shekinah glory was there. Even as these words are being spoken, they can see the tabernacle of God, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He is there, I'm in their midst. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. It is no accident that the name of Jesus Christ that was given to Joseph and Mary that we celebrate this time of year is Emmanuel, God with us. It is also no accident that Jesus before he left said, I will send a helper to be with you. And for everyone here this morning that is a follower of God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. God is with you. And God is with us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The children of the king are not slaves. And they do not bow to anyone but the king. This is not pride on our part. It is not rebellion and arrogance on our part. But it is to remind us that we are neither worthy or worthless, but we are loved by the creator of the universe. Now, what does all that mean for us? Notice to us then, true worship's object. The object of true worship is Jesus. And let us go back through the blessings of worship and see that Jesus fulfills all of these things for us. In the first place, then, we see that as we worship Jesus through the spirits, only because of the grace of God, he is our provision. What does it say in Matthew 6.33? Seek first what? The kingdom of God. And then what? All these things, things, will be added unto you. When we take our glasses off and we believe that this world is what is real and we, we, we shift our priorities to scrabble about on the ground trying to just get a few extra scraps for ourselves, we have to remind ourselves by putting on the glasses to remember that we are children of the King and he has promised us life eternal and the abundant life in this life and the things of this life ought not to capture our attention, he ought to capture our attention. And when he does, and we seek first his kingdom, 
All these things are taken care of. Jesus is our provision. He can take everything from us. But if we have him, we have everything we need and so much more. He is our peace. He is our peace. Our greatest concern is or ought to be, are we in right relationship with our maker? Because we will stand before him one day. And Isaiah 9, 6 says that one of the names, other names of Jesus, he has many, is Prince of Peace. And in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, it reminds us that Jesus is our peace and God is a God of peace. He has reconciled us to himself. There is no longer a barrier there. We are no longer enemies with God. We are friends of God and sons and daughters of God. And all the turmoil that is around us, that is a part of our lives, there ought to be a settled peace as we started this service with that video. It is not peace, man. It is not just peace from conflict, the absence of conflict, but it is a settled knowledge and a settled resting in the presence of God. As the storm swirls around us, we are not shaken and we are not moved because our peace is not external. Our peace is not of this world. Our peace is internal. Our peace is God with us and our peace is from out of this world. He is our peace. We've mentioned this before, but it is always fascinating to me that in the storm, Jesus is in the boat. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Because he finds his rest in the will of his Father, not in the storm that rages around him. He is our protection. He sends out his disciples in Matthew 10 and says, Be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. And then in Matthew 28, his final commission to them, he sends them out and he says, And I will be with you always, even up until the end of the age. Wherever we go, Jesus' name on our lips and lived out through our lives. We have the promise that he is with us. Our days are numbered. And no one and nothing can take us before the time that he has appointed. Jesus is our protection. He is our prosperity. This one, please turn with me, if, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. When we were in Ontario for some conferences... One of our speakers reminded us of this passage. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. We're not going to read that, but the context is a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he calls him good teacher and says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus reminds him of some of the Ten Commandments. And his response is, I've kept all of these things. My righteousness is my own. And Jesus says, one thing you're lacking, sell everything you have and follow me. You see the kingdom as being earthbound. You don't see rightly. As Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight. 
No, this rich young ruler sees it, it's a piece of this pie. It's, it's this life that is of, of ultimate importance. And Jesus says, no. Sell everything you have. Count me as more valuable than your possessions. And what did the rich young ruler do? With great sorrow, he leaves. He values his stuff more than Jesus. So what does Peter say in verse 28? See, he says to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. Now, we don't know the tone that that was given in, as our speaker pointed out. Since it's Peter, it's probably Peter with his extended right arm patting himself on the back. Well, that guy's a loser. But Jesus, we, we have left everything to follow you because we're awesome. Might be how Peter is saying this. But it's possible that how Peter is saying this is almost in despair. But Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. Is it worth it? And what does Jesus say? What do we expect Jesus to say? I think we expect Jesus to say, yes, Peter, this life is going to have hardship and pain and suffering. But oh, brother, what I got prepared for you in heaven. And that's true. But what does Jesus actually say? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying? The promise is eternal life in the age to come. But the promise also is a larger family than you could possibly imagine and a much larger family than you left to follow me. And who is the fulfillment of that? We are. Rebecca McLaughlin, excellent writer, has said, loneliness is the only form of suffering that no Christian should have to endure. We are family. We are family to those who have no family. We are family to those who have left everything to follow Jesus. And it is not just our family, but we're part of a family that spans the globe. So that Jesus' promise is true as they always are. And there are people today in our world that to follow Jesus means leaving, beside, leaving aside family. And Jesus says, you will receive more than you could possibly imagine in the life to come, but in this life you will also receive a hundredfold family because my family is huge. Do we welcome individuals in? Do we understand the prosperity that we have in Jesus? We may have left our, our, our stuff to follow Jesus. And the answer to Peter's question is a resounding yes. What have we gained? We've gained a family bigger than we could possibly imagine, and much larger than any family we may have left. A community of friends still locked in this life without the proper glasses, without the grace of God. It's worth it. And it's so much more than just worth it. And notice in the last place, his presence is always with us. Jesus says in the high priestly prayer that he's going to send another comforter just like him, the helper, and he will be with us for how long? 
forever. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm leaving and it's better for you that I go. And I can't imagine anybody in the room thought that that was true. And here we are almost 2,000 years later. And Jesus may not physically be here, but the Holy Spirit is inside of every one of us that are true believers in Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. God is with us. And God will be with us in the future as well, as we read Revelation 21 and 22. And so Grace Baptist Church, are we true worshipers of Jesus? Do we have the kingdom goggles on? Do we see how things are supposed to be right side up? Or have we become so desensitized that we believe the world upside down is the real one? We need each other. And we don't need just Grace Baptist Church. We need other churches of like faith and practice across the island, across the Maritimes, and across Canada, across the world. We need each other. Christianity, in case you haven't noticed in our culture, is no longer either held in high esteem or treated with indifference. Christianity is seen as dangerous. And our response is that it is the truth. The light shines brightest in the darkness. We need each other. And we need to put on the right glasses so we can see the world as it ought to be, which is as it was prior to the fall and as it will be when Jesus comes again. We celebrate his first advent at Christmas, but we're always looking ahead to his second coming. This world that we occupy when we leave this place is not right. It's upside down. The system and those that occupy it and perpetuate it are not thinking rightly. They are not bowing the knee to King Jesus. They are not living as though God exists and rules and reigns. They are not living as though God is to be exclusively worshipped. They do not see things rightly. But if you are here this morning and you do, the only reason you do is by his grace. And so as we go out, we do not go out under contractual obligation by God or that God is contractually obligated to us. These things do not come so that we can earn his favor or do not come because we do the right thing. No, they only come because of his amazing grace. And as we live our lives in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our workplaces, uh, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, all the days of the week. We are a little trailer of the kingdom of God everywhere we go. We're a glimpse. We have been given the truth. The question is, are we walking in it? Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we are thankful or ought to be and grateful or ought to be for your grace and your mercy. Father, we see rightly, but we only see rightly because you have opened our eyes. It is a supernatural work we cannot do ourselves. We cannot reason ourselves into truth. We cannot argue others into truth. Only you, Father, by your amazing love and grace, can open the hearts and minds of individuals so they can see rightly. And like an individual putting on glasses for the first time, starts to see things with crystal clarity, so too with us it is only as we read and study 
and obey your word, we see things rightly. We see things as they ought to be. By your grace and because of your promises, as they one day will be. And Father, this is good. This is so good. And so may we share with those around us, not from a position of superiority, not out of arrogance, not out of a sense of triumphalism, but out of a sense of humility. We are sinners saved only by grace, and we want everybody to get in on this. Help us to live as though King Jesus is actually ruling on the throne as he is. May we live that out each and every day, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.